At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Hey everybody, Patrick Hunter here and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. We're all about boxing and history on this podcast. We're welcoming in a new year, 2023, but I'm back with my boy, Bryn Jonathan Butler, author, filmmaker, and we're here to talk some boxing history. Bro, how are you? I'm really good. Uh, we're looking back at one of my favorite fights from actually 25 years ago. It just seems crazy. It's that long ago. I can do this. Every time we go back at one of these fights and it's a fight that I either remember or I remember the time frame, I'm just kind of like, really? Am I that old? Yeah, I am sucks but you know this was an incredible fight that it didn't encapsulate 90s heavyweights because there's so much happening apart from these two guys yeah but they were kind of like the new breed the new generation ushering in kind of like the end of that old tyson holyfield uh well lewis was still reigning obviously but foreman more all those guys generation and so we got ike ibeabuchi and david tua clashing in and i mean dude combining to throw an insane amount of punches just disgusting amount of punches yeah i mean as much as people talk about the thrill in manila this does considerably more punches this mm -hmm. by the 10th round does more punches than a fight that was going on at the time between oscar de la hoya and pernell whitaker it does way more punches than Bo holyfield too uh, so it's it's interesting because I mean, one of the things that's intriguing about this fight for me is you think if this was a heavyweight championship, instead of two guys just on the way up where it's a kind of crucible to establish that they're as good as we think they might be, especially Tua, uh, Tua was heavy favorite in this fight, not a heavy favorite, but a favorite in this fight. Um, it's just it, it happened at a really interesting point in their careers. And I think one takeaway from this is that it really derailed a Biabuchi as it ascended him at the same time. Um, and, and the other just weird thing I, I'm, I'm not used to is I was 18 when I watched this fight. It was a TV fight because it was HBO Boxing After Dark. It happens June 7th, 1997 in Sacramento. Um, both of these guys are undefeated. Tua is 27-0 with 23 knockouts. A Biabuchi is 16-0, 12 knockouts. Ike, Ike didn't have much of a resume that you, he just looked amazing. Um, and he's called the president, you know, which is just an awesome nickname. Um, but Tua, I think a lot of us, I mean, he, he just bears such a resemblance to Tyson in so many ways with his tremendous left hook. Um, but we'd also seen him on that boxing, like the night of the young heavyweights. And we knew that John Ruiz was somebody formidable in that crew of fighters and Tua taking him out in 10 seconds. Uh, you know, you, we can just all hear. Well, I don't want to uh, split hairs. It was like 19 seconds, but still that's not like, 
but, but like the knockout itself i think was it within 10 seconds oh yeah where... i think yes they included a part of the count so yeah. it's like it was pretty fucking immediate is the point it was it was just jaw dropping it was it was just a really bizarre like how does this happen this isn't supposed to happen this easily um because I mean, we know with like as Tyson and the talent stepped too. up, it it he couldn't do what he was doing against like her Mercedes and the early sort of guys where it becomes this like rocky three highlight reel. Um, so Chua was just, can he be this good? Because he just looks like a tank. And and so coming into this fight, I my memory of it from 25 years ago, I haven't watched it from start to finish since then at 18 was that this was completely a showcase for a bibucci and a bibucci were just kind of he was the big what if what would he have done to lewis what would he have done to that stable of 1990s heavyweights if he was a player who the hell would what would he have done to holyfield like sort of sort of thing as as bo did the damage he did what would a bibucci have done with his conditioning with his stamina his endurance his punch selection but rewatching this, I was like, it's Tua who stands out. I gave it to Tua by a wide margin in this rewatching, whereas my memory of it was that Abiyabuchi had a wide margin victory. So I'm not used to that going back to fights. Usually I'm fairly consistent with my scoring, but it was it was kind of a revelation where after the first few rounds, it's Tua backing him up and sort of taking control, not dominating, but taking control for the majority of the fight, despite the fact that it's a Biabuchi who holds an individual record that still stands for most punches thrown by a heavyweight. Yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff, dude, because there's a lot of things going on outside of the ring leading up to the fight with both fighters. I remember in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, right when message boards and forums uh were kind of starting to take over bulletin board systems yeah i'm fucking old bros come on <laughs> i've been around a bit bulletin board systems were some 90s ass shit dude was basically just you leave a message you know and similar to a forum but just set up differently but i remember in the early days of boxing forums and message boards prominent things that you would see as far as threads or arguments would be like when is mike tyson coming back to take over the heavyweight division yeah. When's Prince Nassim coming back? You know, when's he coming back? And another thing was, where could I, you know, is Ike Ibeabuchi getting out of prison? When's he getting out of prison? And how quickly can he take over the heavyweight division when he does? And that was like a, a that shit would be like a weekly. We'd go over that and we'd be like, go back to this thread. Somebody already brought it up last week because it was all the time because that's how formidable he looked, <clears throat> not just in this fight. And <clears throat> excuse me even having him losing this fight as i did as well he still looked extremely formidable because that's how good david Tua looked in spots um yeah. but you know we were talking about as we uh, before we started recording just how different this fight looked from your average heavyweight fight now and i mean to be to be fair it looked different from your average heavyweight fight then too it stood out then yeah but it really stands out now because you're seeing things from two heavyweights that you just don't really see from contemporary heavyweights overall, you know? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think what what this fight rewatching made me think about is as the three big heavyweight figures that we have, leaving out Usyk, but I mean, just before Usyk entered that picture of champions, where it was like they were all undefeated, Fury, Wilder, Joshua, 
And the idea that Fury beating Wilder three times and really beating him every round that he wasn't knocked down by by many, many judges scoring, including including mine. Um, suddenly, a lot of people are like, he's the best heavyweight who ever lived. <laughs> Have you ever seen a better heavyweight than this? As if beating the same guy three times should allow for that kind of opinion. And I'm not trying to take anything away from Fury. I think he's a tremendous fighter. I think he would be so complicated for any heavyweight to beat. But it it it, it is but, important. But that think- thought can exist in the same mind of somebody who says that he's really good, but he's not that good. No, you know, like, like point it- directly to these guys and say, with all due respect, he's not that good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if you had. Like a figure like Michael Grant coming up at the same time, who on his way up, there were talks like you're saying, like, if Tyson isn't going to take over the heavyweight division, who's the next Tyson? Is it Tua? Is it Michael Grant, who has the same people around him? Yeah, I think he had Bill Caton uh, managing him, which Tommy uh, Tommy Morrison also had. So there's all this kind of like trying to recreate the myth, yeah. recreate the You ride. basically just did an HBO boxing intro from like 1996. Who is the next great heavyweight? You know, exactly. That's exactly. pretty much what that was. So I think I think these guys auditioning for that mm. role, which is really the reason they're trying to petition for that, is so that HBO can sell more fights, like get more money. Is nobody sold tickets like Tyson? You didn't really care who he was fighting. It was sort of like Arturo Gaddy. It's it's when is Gaddy fighting, not who is he fighting. That's a rare category for any heavyweight to have. Even Tyson Fury doesn't have that. Joshua doesn't have that. Wilder doesn't have that. Yeah, we are asking, true. who are they going to fight? And and so I, I just thought it was really interesting to think if both of these guys were coming up in their prime, they're both 24 when they're fighting here. They are young. They're undefeated. They're knocking out the vast majority of their competition. And they both have dynamite in both fists and can throw this kind of output regularly. Because it's not like this is the only fight Tua ever did this. Tua against, uh, I think it was David Izonate, was in a top five all-time punches for heavyweights as well. So when Tua was in shape, and it's interesting to look back at Tua, like the Tua coming out of the Olympics that won the bronze medal, is a little guy (laughs) compared to where he's headed. And then he just blows up really after this fight where he's really struggling to be under 250 after this. For, for the most part, um, you, I mean, you mentioned like he is he he has an interesting body for a heavyweight. We don't see it that much. He's not that big upper body wise relative to his lower body, but he's able to just generate such torque with his hook. He I mean, his right hand is a really weird right hand. It looks like a catapult the way it sort of flings over the top. Yeah, he just like, you know, he's got a weird trajectory to it where there's not much, you know, they teach you to throw it from your chin to, you know, get that yeah. straight kind of driving for it. But he just gets that whipping overhand back, yeah. you know, and he's not weird. a big, and, and a lot of it. I mean, he and I have about the same. We're the same height. We're the same reach. We're about 5'10 with a 70 inch reach. It is unbelievably frustrating to fight guys who are over 6'2 or 6'3 with, with a considerable reach. And Abibuchi doesn't have a great reach. He has a 76-inch reach, which is still formidable. But to land a right hand is really hard if you're a little guy, if you're a little stature with little reach against somebody that can keep keep them keep you off of them. So it's another feature of this fight, it being in the phone booth 
where oddly, uh, Ike is able to smother Tua's left hook, his best weapon, throughout most of the, the first half of the fight. And it should be the other way around. You shouldn't be smothered if you're the shorter guy and you're on the inside. But it's a credit to Abibuchi's infighting in this that Tua can throw everything inside. He is a beautiful, vicious uppercut inside. He throws a lot of body punches. But every time he's throwing anything, especially anything that lands, that he kind of leans into and commits to, he's getting a flurry in return, which is leading to Ike's huge punch output um, because he's really able to keep Tua off and contain and control him at the beginning with just his ability and willingness to engage in big numbers. So it's it's a fascinating fight on a lot of levels. And, and I just, I would wish these guys were in the mix today because they really, it does remind you just how strong the division was in the 1990s, where, I mean, I just was compiling like a little list of the guys you have Lennox Lewis, you have Holyfield, you have Michael Moore, you have Foreman, you have Tyson, sort of, you know, a different Tyson post-prison, uh, Riddick Bowe, Ray Mercer, Tommy Morrison, Galata, Ruddick, Michael Grant, and an interesting figure who looms over this, at least for me, is how does the stock of Felix Sabone not go through the roof after seeing what happens to Tua here and against Chris Bird? You know, I mean, <clears throat> or I mean, I think, Bucci against Chris Bird as well. I think that David Tua was, I want to say, 18 when Savone knocked him out. I want it was it the Goodwill Games or something? No, no, the Olympics. It was 92. Was it the Olympics? And I mean, it wasn't like a clean knockout either. It was a very good punch, but it, he got up. He, he was very wobbly. The fight should have been stopped for sure. But, um, but he was young. Savone was a very seasoned fighter. So, I mean, you kind of have to put that into some context however yeah um even just how much to a changed from then yeah uh you can see him just as a straight up straightforward fighter doesn't have a whole lot of nuance to him and he's also considerably smaller um he picked up a, a decent amount of mass and so there's like i said uh at the start there's a lot of stuff going on uh outside of the ring and one of the other things going on with David Tua, he got picked up by main events. Uh, so throughout, he got guided by main events. One of his trainers was, he had Roger Bloodworth, Lou Duva uh, in his corner. And he had a couple other throughout the years too. But <clears throat> I remember talking to Nicole New Nicole Duva, like on the, we had a, we had her on the show like years and years ago. And she was telling anecdotes about how, for instance, when she like went to homecoming, her date came to pick her up and Holyfield and Tua and a couple other guys were over at her house and scared the shit out of her date, you know, stuff like that. When Holyfield is getting ready to beat Tyson in their first fight, David Tua is his chief sparring partner to kind of, right. to kind of emulate Mike Tyson to uh and and on top of that you know that kind of got around like rumors that you know who is this guy that you know because he had been on tv people had seen him here and there and especially in uh australia he had been on tv in australia a lot in his early career but he was less known in the u.s and he got a lot of uh mileage out of that kind of like you know he was sparring with holyfield for tyson shit and so <clears throat> he had a lot of momentum behind him like you said earlier, he was the favorite coming into this. And so the story behind this fight, just to kind of briefly get into it, was that according to Lou DiBella, who was the the person who was putting together the vast majority of these fights for Boxing After Dark, 
at this time because boxing after dark had just developed the year before that so this was in the earlier years of boxing after dark um basically like you had mentioned iba bucci was pretty much unknown nobody really knew who he was he had a weird name to a lot of people all they knew is that he looked scary and he was undefeated but they were looking for opponents for David Tua because they basically run out of credible opponents for David Tua. Cedric Kushner was one of the guys who was supplying a lot of the heavyweights for these heavyweight explosion cards and the boxing after dark cards. Um, and so basically they were running out of opponents for David Tua. Somebody has had suggested, I think it was Bob Spagnola, uh, uh, Ike Biabuchi's manager, has had suggested Ibeabuchi and they were like, nah, nah, you know, we don't want this guy. And so then somebody had had basically uh, talked the Duvas main events into putting him in there because they just needed to keep David Tua busy. And so they put him in there with Ibe Abuchi. And Ibe Abuchi's story was basically just that, again, unknown, and that the he had been on TV a few times but was unimpressive on the t on the his TV outings to that point. Those were his his decisions was that he, those were just happened to be the fights that went to decision. And so people were like, okay, he looks scary, but he's not really fighting that scary. So they were able to talk the Duvas into accepting Iba Ibuchi as, as an opponent. Um, so, I mean, it, it, that's kind of how this wound up getting put, put together was that it was, you know, just a, a random fight that just got put together kind of out of necessity. That's what's crazy. But anyway, um, <laughs> And I just just to just to add, I mean, that night of the young heavyweights, that's March of 96. Um, that really established two things that the, the the fighter who was showcased on that card was Shannon Briggs. Shannon Briggs had the big HBO special. There's some really funny moments to revisit there where it's like Shannon Briggs is not your conventional heavyweight. He speaks French and auto automatically they cut to Briggs being like Jim Appel, Shannon Briggs, and they just move on. And and it's clearly they're trying to position him. He has Teddy Atlas in his corner. Tyson is being mentioned all the time, all the time about who you need to think about this guy to contextualize him, which, by the way, was the same thing that happened to Mike Tyson on the way up. Your grandparents missed Rocky Marciano or, or Joe Lewis. Your dad missed Muhammad Ali. Do not miss Mike Tyson. And eventually people started buying into that to go, wow, what if it's true? This guy could be really, really special. So HBO was trying to like repeat the formula. And so you had Shannon Briggs going into it clearly as the number one fighter they're showcasing who gets blown away in his fight, totally exposed. Uh, <laughs> it's awful. As he told me, if I won Teddy Atlas, it was we won. And as soon as I lost, I lost, according to Teddy Atlas. And then the other big takeaway was- And, and then he pulls was, a gun on you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then the other huge takeaway was that I think Ruiz Tua was sort of like, wow, this is going to be a great fight. And Tua just has the announcer screaming with excitement, like, wow, what have we just witnessed? This guy is somebody extraordinary. So I think everybody who watched that night was like, when can I see David Tua fight next? Because Ruiz was not just like a, a, a pushover tomato can by any stretch he's gonna go on his way to becoming heavyweight champion have wars with evander holyfield and many others and and Tua very quickly if you look at his fights in the lead up to a bibuchi is we saw him fight daryl wilson who knocked out shannon briggs Tua knocks him out in one round he fights david eyes on in, in kind of a war 
and the the knockout finish of that it's yeah, a that was a stoppage. that was a come from behind like he needed that knockout and he was he was like trudging along doing the best he could and it was like ah he's kind of falling behind oh shit like yeah vicious like just vicious like there's something about watching a two of fight when he's hurting people that you're cringing as he lands punches there's like they said about tyson that his punches sounded different on a bag two is sound different on a head they sound different on a body there's something about it where you're like wow but i find myself involuntarily going oh like, like i all i can think about now maybe again it's an aging thing is the headache that poor guy is going to have the next day or for the rest of his life, as it were. And then there was a great fight right before Abiyabuchi, um, back in the days when people used to fight regularly. Um, Oleg Maskiev is an ex- extraordinary TKO knockout um, in the 11th round. So I think we we're just going like, can he just keep doing this? Which was the same question that people were asking with Tyson on the way up. Can he just keep steamrolling major major opponents? And and then he runs into a Biabuchi, and especially in the first few rounds, it's like the, the tables are really turned on what expectations are for this fight because you're just going, I don't know that Tua has ever seen anything like this. And certainly Abiyabuchi has never seen anything like David Tua with his like far lesser resume, but Abiyabuchi seemed a lot more composed dealing with it. And it, as I say, it it feels like a great heavyweight championship fight in just the, the mood of it, except it's the opposite. It's two guys that really don't have an established resume, which makes this fight kind of strange and stand out in a weird way. It's it's definitely a kind of a sort of showbox like level almost type of fight where it's like it's almost there's a crossroads where, all right, somebody's going to lose. We have no idea where the loser is going to go, but the winners pretty much got only one way to go and that's up. And that's the kind of fight that it was. And I mean, I, I guess even on paper, it looked like that kind of fight. But man, you know, once they got in there, it's just it's an incredible fight. And it's it's. It, it's also a very strange fight, though, in my opinion. So, like you said earlier, when you start the fight out, already you can tell, like, all right, <laughs> this is not your run-of-the-mill, like, 2020s heavyweight fight where there's a bunch of sloppy fucking trudging and holding and flopping and draping and colliding. But they're both starting out punching, and they're both starting out throwing, like, you know, hard punches. They're not fucking around. But Ike Bayabuchi, if you've never seen him before and like this is your introduction, you know, I mean, there's copies of Ibeabuchi Ibe too all over the fucking all over YouTube at this point. So you can see it. But if you've never watched him before and this is your first introduction and you're watching him, you're like, that's a large guy and he's throwing a lot of punches. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a large fellow and he's scary looking. And he's punching a lot. And uh, it's it's really keeping David Tua on on his back foot, and you could tell that Tua's kind of thinking, trying to work it out, bobbing and weaving, avoiding a lot of the incoming, but really not doing a ton back. Um, he was far too passive and inactive. I thought uh, that doesn't mean that I thought that you know he deserved to lose, but he was far more passive and inactive than he should have been in the first few rounds. Um, but even so. It was more a testament to how busy Ike was and how much he was moving about that Tua still was moving his hands. It was just that Ike was overwhelming him. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you compare it to, I mean, a recent great fight by everybody's estimation, like Fury Wilder 3, one of the interesting things, I mean, as you're saying, is like, these guys look extremely coordinated. Like, you you know, I think Wilder has the greatest weapon I've ever seen implemented in a fight in my life, that right hand. I In sparring, it is incredible what he can do, where he is completely dominated by sparring partners. And then all of a sudden you see him throw that punch where he can cross the entire ring with it, with this kind of leverage. Everything else he does looks like an uncoordinated giraffe or something, the way he walks around, but he has this tremendous weapon. But when you're watching both of these guys, they're so poised. All the punches have such leverage. The way they can take punches seems different from guys today. Um, I don't yeah. know why they're not falling all over. Like they're, they're tight composed, you know, like it's yeah. like, you know, it's oh, textbook. So, so durable. Like it looks like a fight from the 1940s. Like it's a fight that while you're watching, you're like, why is it in color? Shouldn't this be black and white? Like, this is not how people are supposed to fight anymore. This is what they used to do back like, then. Like how HBO did for the Gotti Ward rematch right <laughs> right and 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 so there, there's something interesting about that where it's like anytime anthony joshua gets hit by something from a heavyweight he falls down every time wilder gets hit by something he is really wobbled these guys are never wobbled in this entire fight really there you can see it it affects them because they're throwing bombs but they're never wobbled and you're like what what is it about that like what what's different um, so yeah, you're absolutely right in the first fight. I mean, Tua is controlled by Ibuchi, and Ibuchi is undefeated. He's he's not quite the puncher that Tua is, but he can throw in volume in a way that Tua just doesn't need to. So it's it's interesting just to see the punch selection also that Tua has to contend with defensively. Tua's not a bad defensive fighter. He he neither of these guys demonstrate much foot speed. That's an interesting facet here that I think we can appreciate Tyson a little bit more is that Tyson became this post-prison where he's got really fast hands and he comes forward and he can try to catch you with a feint or something. Pre-prison, Tyson can punch with both hands, is swinging to both sides. He's got his shift. He is just as comfortable working from a southpaw position as a conventional stance and loves to find angles in a fluid way rather than creating things, set things. When you're watching both of these guys, I don't think they tried to find an angle against each other once in the entire fight. It's get yeah. into the pocket and then just try to outswing on the person or wait for them to hit you and then throw a flurry back. Nothing wrong with it but it can make you appreciate the levels in boxing is go back and watch Tyson doing this. He's never in front of you to be hit and he's countering in ways that are that that's why he's getting these great knockouts. These guys don't have that level. So instead it's just, it's like a, a 18th century naval battle where we need to get in front of each other and open fire. And that's the whole fight in the phone. Yeah. Booth. Yeah. It's fucking red coats lining up in a line <laughs> pop. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it's the yeah. Um, there was there's not a ton of nuance to it in terms of uh creating angles or or tricking or setting traps or anything like that. Um, I mean, on a smaller level, yes. But one thing I did notice in the first round that made me feel 
nice about myself when they took them till like round 10 to fucking bring it up <laughs> the, the commentators but uh one thing i did notice is that ibeabuchi actually did a really really good job a surprisingly good job of staying at a range that was just perfectly awful for tua um yeah. where he was making it so that he was jabbing from the outside pretty much every single round he started out probably like, you know, between 20 and 30 seconds of jabbing on the inside. And what happened from there, you know, largely determined who won the round. But early on, early on, he was jabbing, doing well from the outside. And then as soon as the fight started, like, you know, the distance started closing, he was like locked onto Tua, like, you know, right in close so that Tua could not get that hook off. And so one thing Tua actually started doing was digging to the body with his right hand. And I mean, those were some nasty shots, man. Uh, yeah. They mentioned him a few times, like the commentators, but he did it pretty consistently, actually. And uh, it wasn't until later in the fight, but he did it uh, that it kind of affected Ibeabuchi, but he did it consistently throughout the fight. And man, that was a nasty shot. He's got this really like digging, like right hand to the body that's, you know, not a straight, but just a really, ugh, man, he gets so much leverage. Like you see a fucking... Uh, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of these dudes who are like s just slamming home runs in the in baseball yeah. are dudes who have massive trunks, like not the skinny, you know, Tommy Hearns looking dudes. Generally, those are not the home run power hitters. Generally, the power hitters are these fools who are fucking massive in their midsection and are creating that kind of torque, just like Cecil, David Tua. Cecil Fielder, Cecil Fielder back in the day, just crushing fucking balls out of the fucking stadium you know <laughs> that type of shit i mean well and steroids too but regardless you know uh i mean perhaps less so cecil fielder but regardless you know just the the thick that body type creates a lot of torque and a lot of twisting torque and man david Tua really knows how to get going with that shit um yeah. and anyway so ike Bayabuchi, great round one but still a very entertaining round one, but it was clearly heading in his direction. Yeah, ab absolutely. Ike, Ike is throwing at about a rate of twice the heavyweight average of punches. Both of these guys have extraordinary punch selection for guys their size. I mean, as you're saying about Tua, his body attack, but but Abiyabuchi is also throwing to the body. He has a he has a kind of unique leverage to his punches also. You'll see it later on in his last fight against Chris Bird, where you have one of the, I think, the most iconic knockouts of the 1990s. Uh, that fight, I think, is 1999, so it's about two years after this one. Um, this sort of, it, it's not like a ruddick, like the the uppercut hook, but it's something there. It's it's at, mm -hmm. at, a, mm -hmm. at, an, at a peculiar angle that full credit to bird to get up i don't know how he got up from that shot because the leverage was just insane yeah, it starts at his fucking toes you know yeah like. it does it starts at his toes it it, it it looks like a 600 foot home run off off of bird's face like just off of his jaw um he gets up and says i'm all right with spit hanging off him and stuff oh, oh okay no it, it it's amazing it, <laughs> um but abibuchi is yeah, as you say, smothering Tua in a way that is unusual because nobody up to that point was able to smother Tua's hook. He always found a way to get it off. And as we're saying, it's yeah, you not try to run away from it. And then he yeah, catches yeah. you leaping, running away. It's like you Absolutely. can't do it. Absolutely. I mean, you you look at the way that he knocked out Ruiz. He is jumping. I mean, it's it, it's like little Mac in punch out jumping to hit his opponent's face. Burn, burn, burn. 
Um, but even when he's jumping, the leverage that he's able to uncork with it is extraordinary. And so, yeah, it's something to watch Tua in this fight, try to figure out. And he does he rarely gets credit for this. But Tua is, is not dominated in the first three rounds, but he's really controlled in an unusual way. And, and he's able to figure some things out and have the mental toughness to stay in there and, and resolve, I mean, his determination, his willpower. And I mean, probably the last thing we ever hear about David Tua, his conditioning. His conditioning is really remarkable. Again, watch, God, watch Wilder, who's probably got 5%, 6% body fat, is out of breath after the first gasping. round against Fury. Yeah, just gasping. gasping. He's just, I don't know what it is about him. Where, like, where is this condition? Look at Anthony Joshua. Why is he always out of breath after the first round? And you watch these guys that have similar kind of big builds, and they're just going and going and going, even though they're both taking a lot of punishment in this fight. So, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, er, early in this fight, you have a Biabuchi at a gear that we've just not seen anybody his size punch because nobody has ever done it. And um, and Tua is frustrated, but not. You can see on his face that he's not losing his determination either. Um, that's a great thing about Floyd Mayweather. Is at some point in every Mayweather fight, you saw the opponent's face go, "I don't know what to do," and I start wasting my energy in frustration of that problem. I don't know what the tool is to solve this puzzle. Yeah. And he keeps hitting me, and I I know I'm losing rounds. Yeah. And I you're wasting run. energy trying to find the solution rather right. than wasting energy working on the solution. You know, like That's having it. it and working on it. Yeah. So it's That's it. So so both these guys, it's funny that they're they're in it in a way that it's like there's no concern whatsoever about if this goes 12 rounds and we're going at this pace. Oh my god. It's like they're not it's like it never crossed their mind of being concerned about their conditioning despite the fact that they're on their way to blazing to a record. That's a weird feature of this fight because nowadays Joshua after Ruiz it's like well he's going to become a different kind of fighter that's more composed that recognizes his limitations <laughs> and that sort of thing. <laughs> you have it's to like make some these adjustments. Fucking life epiphany or something like that and these guys are like fuck it let's just throw yeah, and, and I, I kept thinking also, I mean, as much as Tua was talked about as the next Tyson, to me, he looks a lot more like the next Joe Frazier because they 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 both have weird right hands. I think Tua has a bet, better right hand than Joe Frazier, which is not saying much. I'm not trying to denigrate Joe Frazier. Love him, but couldn't tie his shoes with the right hand, as yeah, was said his right by hand everybody. Was just not good. Um, but but Tua, Tua just has a different punch selection than Frazier. I think he has a little bit more of a sophisticated attack in terms, in terms of his options and his willingness to throw different punches. Um, but I do see just similarities that if you take away Frazier's hook, he's really in trouble. And another feature of this fight, unlike the Thriller in Manila, which it's so closely linked with in terms of punch output, is that Frazier frequently with Ali was always held down, pinned down the way Lewis would do to opponents. For some reason, Abiyabuchi never does that once to Tua. He never uses his height to, to 
push him down the way every tall fighter should be taught to deal with a smaller fighter. It never happens in this. The smothering that we're talking about is about them coming into close proximity, not about the levels of height and using that over one another. So it allows for a much more interesting fight. Maybe this is instructive for referees to allow guys to fight in a way that they don't penalize that the way they should, because you just cannot fight somebody that's allowed to hold you down if they're taller than you in that way so yeah. it's yeah. there are certain kinds of things that uh fighters can do that can really stall out a fight or basically shut it down that are more or less legal at this point and yeah that's one of those kinds of things where you often see fighters do that and they won't get penalized even after rounds and rounds and rounds of doing it and luckily that's not what happened here um through the first few rounds yeah one of the funny things is that Tua is actually doing some things really well. He's doing some really good things, even in those rounds he's losing. Like you said, that right hand. Uh, Ivey Bucci's basically taken the hook away. He's got his fucking right glove, like, plastered. That shit ain't moving, dude. Really but disciplined. He didn't throw his right hand a whole lot. Um, and except for to throw a right uppercut. For some reason, he was really, like... He just would. He just kept going to the right uppercut for some reason, and I mean, I get it. The guy's shorter; he's leaning in, but I mean, the consequences of it is like, dude, you can't. You know, that ain't worth it. So, but for the most part, he's got his right glove really far up, and he's taken Tua's hook away, and so Tua is doing some work with his right hand, and he's doing good work with his right hand. It's just not quite enough to overcome what Ike Bayabuchi's doing. One thing I did notice about Ibe Ibuchi, especially since you brought up Anthony Joshua, and we've talked about Anthony Joshua just being far too muscle-bound. Um, yeah. One thing I noticed about Ibe Ibuchi's hook, though, is he doesn't really turn it over. Pretty much the entire fight, he yeah. doesn't really turn it over. And if he had, and, and you know what? Maybe he was too muscle-bound to really be able to turn it over. But if he had, I felt like maybe he could have he could have done even a little bit better against Tua because obviously with Tua throwing his hook, he was open for a hook. Um, but I mean, obviously, like I said, it's a big risk. It's a big fucking risk hooking with a hooker. And that's how I Ibuchi gets in trouble in round four and five, actually. Yeah, you're right. I mean, another, another interesting thing about the posture of these two fighters I noticed is that Tua stands tall. Tua fights full height. And, and really, he's rather rigid, his spine. He'll lean down on his legs, but he keeps his back really straight. And Ibuchi is always at an angle. He's fighting at about two o'clock. It, 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 it's, I don't know that it works to his detriment, but I wonder just, just in the way that they're throwing hooks at each other and punches, if this means something that impacted the fight in terms of landing hooks or uppercuts or that kind of thing, is Tyson could kind of bend over. And ironically, what started Abiyabuchi's career was actually watching T Tyson Douglas. And I, I, you know, when Tyson is coming in low, it's different than how Tua does it to try to get inside. They have different approaches to get inside. Um, Tua does not have the windshield wiper kind of kind of peekaboo style to get in. Uh, there's more more conventional way that he gets in, and he's just willing to sort of bully his way in a lot a lot more. Yeah. But Abiyabuchi, I just thought because. If you watch him in fights where he lands these things, he just takes people's heads off. And yet he's not able to land a lot on Tua where, like compare it to say Lennox Lewis on Tua, where Tua was completely controlled and took a fair bit of punishment in that fight. In this, it's it's more like they're just throwing, not, not arm punches, but 
Ibiabuchi is a little hesitant to throw, like the way he, like think about the punch he landed against Bird to take his head off. He's throwing a good foot and a half through the target as he's following through. It's like, like a baseball player like with the full swing kind of thing. He's not doing that so much here. He's more concerned, smartly, I think, with throwing combinations and flurries. Mm-hmm. I wonder had he taken a different approach and tried to knock Tua out, if it would have had a better result or a worse result in terms of Tua being able to counter that. Now, that's a good question, though. And it does kind of and it does kind of uh, beg the question, in my opinion, too, is that like what happens with a guy like Tua? if you're able to hurt him like in the first round, like if you're like, if you're able to push him back and just fucking go at him and hurt him. And then all of a sudden it's like different ball game. Like, Oh shit. Like, you know, my whole thing was that I was going to be able to come at you. So what do I do now? But you know, but again, that's the, that's the fucking danger is putting yourself in that position to be John Ruiz, you know, is it's, it's bad news, but you know, Ibeabuchi, yeah, he never really went all out like that, as he probably should not have. Um, after that third round, yeah, Lou, Lou, no, it's okay. After that third round, Lou Duva starts going, uh, you know, starts going Lou Duva <laughs> in between rounds <laughs> and starts telling David Tua, you need to turn him around. You need to start, you know, turning him around, which I take to, to mean uh inside rather than standing in front of them like we've been talking about start using angles start shifting start doing something so that the angle changes and you guys aren't just you know going you go then i go then you go then i go type of thing because you know that's not the kind of fight we want but he doesn't really start doing that in round four per se it's just that he actually starts uh starts jabbing with ibe abuchi and then at the end of the round he starts really breaking through and it was like all of a sudden toward the end of the fourth round, uh, it's he's winning exchanges and getting closer and closer it, in those moments in the preceding rounds when Abibuchi is able to keep Tua off or able to smother him, Tua is breaking through in those moments more and more. He's starting to change the complexion of the fight a little bit. And yeah. on top of that, you're starting to see Abibuchi like that output is starting to drop because it's like you can't. You can't throw 95 punches around when you're 250 pounds for very long. You know, it doesn't, that ain't going to go. No, I mean, I, 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 the, the tides turned for me. I gave the first three rounds to Ike by the, by the fourth round, Tua turns it around. And again, my memory of it was that Ike had more control than he did watching it. This go round, it's hard for me to really even allow like for questionable rounds that might be even. Um, because I just thought Tua is backing him up. If you look at effective aggression, which is my own subjective way of scoring a puncher, is if 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 you are dictating the pace of the fight and controlling the other fighter, even if he's throwing more punches, I don't really care. Um, I'm thinking of the quality the quality of the punches and just that stupid Max Kellerman thing, which is not stupid, but I mean, who would you rather be? Um, well, and- that's, a, that's a good way of putting it, I think. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just mean it's it sounds glib and sort of of course, of course. But but it's it reductive, is, but it is kind of true. But it is kind of true, and and I'm not opposed to of the other ways of scoring. I'm just I'm just sort of laying out how I do. But but by the fourth round, Tua just suddenly looked like I can deal with this. I'm not as concerned with what he's throwing back at me, and I'm finding some ways to get my hook out there. I'm not landing it the way I like. Um, but Tua has his own version of willpower 
that I think is much better than Tyson's, for example, that when Tyson met adversity with an opponent, he was really frustrated by it. If he wasn't able to intimidate, he struggled to and fouled. To and, fouled and yeah, there's there's lots of character issues that were exposed in Tyson if he met opposition. If he wasn't able to sell you on how you should view this, um, and you were like, well, what's the fantasy versus the reality of this situation? If you could get to the reality of it, Tyson never met adversity where he didn't lose. It, if, like if Tyson was backing up, he lost that fight every fight of his career. And Tua is not that way. Tua, Tua just has a different where it's like, I'm just going to give my best. I don't care what you're bringing to this uh, in terms of intimidating me or what your resume is. He just doesn't seem to give a shit. And and I mean, I give him a lot of credit, too, because going back to that Sabone thing, if you rewatch that fight, that was what the little glitch of sound was. I just want to see the 10 seconds of it as we're talking. He fights it exactly the way he fought Ruiz. He just jumps in there. And as he's jumping in there, he gets caught and he gets knocked down twice by not even a, a very powerful right hand. It's just kind of a backing up right hand. But he, get, he, he falls twice and yet he's still willing to fight exactly that same way against Ruiz, somebody with kind of a you know six four, big tall guy. So it's it's interesting to me that despite that Tua had faced some adversity with losing, with his style, somebody knocking him down, um, you don't think about other great fighters. Roy Jones Jr. before he was knocked out had never been knocked down. He'd never been knocked down in sparring or anything like that. I'm sorry, but that's not totally true. Lou Duval got him down. Right, right. I mean, I mean, like, but not like he, but that was like a flash knockdown. He wasn't knocked down, knocked down. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like a serious knockdown. That's true. That is true. And I just, the way that that changes your approach, the way that that changes your, your sort of psychology and what you bring to bear in the ring, I think it's a, it's a big thing. Um, so I, I I find this really fascinating that Tua is able to deal with somebody uh, who brings so much to the table as as where Abiyabuchi is, young, active, powerful, undefeated, has never figured out how to lose in any way, and totally determined. And somehow Tua's willpower breaks Abiyabuchi by the fourth round and doesn't break him that it destroys him or anything like that, but, but you can see he is becoming submissive. Oh, yeah. And and that's the first time it turns. And in my opinion, it never goes back. Abiyabuchi, uh, by the fifth round, I thought Tua is is beca- is able to land some hooks at the end of that round that are the kind of David Tua hooks that we're yep. used to throughout his career. We get to the sixth round. Tua is much more establishing control and dictating where things are happening, where the punch, like where where the exchanges are happening in terms of the geography of the ring. And finally, he's determining the pace of the fight. So by after at the end of the sixth round, I have it even now. Two has won three in a row on my scorecard, and it's even. And we get to the seventh, and now suddenly two is throwing these kind of windmill right hands that begin to land as well. And and yet he has enough composure that it's like, I don't need to knock him out. Again, back to Tyson. When he gets nervous, he's trying to knock the person out and gets tired and gets reckless and basic Tua is not losing his game plan he's improved his game plan and basically sticks to it for the remainder of the fight so end of the seventh round I still have Tua uh four three he's up 
And importantly, last point is that he's throwing or he's landing over 50% of his punches and he's out throwing. No, he's not. No, he's not out throwing a Biabuchi, but he's landing over 50% of his punches and he's landing almost twice as many punches as a Biabuchi by that point in the fight. He might in my notes for round five, like you had said, I'd I'd written that. Tua landed two left hooks toward the end of the of the round, and the second of which stood Ike up straight because it did. The second one they even showed in a replay between rounds where he's kind of he gets caught kind of off balance a little bit, but is like, you know, he he takes the hook and he takes it pretty good. And then again in round six, right toward the bell, he gets caught with a series of big shots from Tua, and then again in round seven, right at the bell, he gets countered with a really big hook. Uh, right at the bell. Um, and I mean, just because something happens at the bell doesn't mean that that fighter automatically wins, but it does leave an impression on the judges. Like it does it, whether you know you like it or not, it definitely does. Closing around strong is important Tua was closing those rounds strong, but even apart from that, he was doing well in the rounds and clearly gaining a momentum. Um, something else that had happened was Ibea Bucci got warned twice in those rounds for using his shoulder because something that started happening was when Tua started getting closer and getting at his range so that he could land his hook and his right hand, instead of smothering him, instead of staying in there, because that would have required a high output again. That would have required him to just stay in there punching because you can't, if you're not going to clinch, you got to do something. And he couldn't do that because he was his output was clearly dipping. Instead of getting in there like that, uh, like he had been earlier, Ibeabuchi started going, boom boom, and ramming him with his shoulder to try to get him to get back. And the ref was like, hey, bud, nah. And so that obviously prevented him from being able to push Tua off. And, I mean, that was big on the ref's part because I I agree with that. Like, you shouldn't be able to forearm, elbow, you know, stiff arm, anything like that. Dude, you got to punch a guy off. And if you can't, then you're in trouble. And that's pretty much what wound up happening. Uh, Ibeabuchi was in trouble. Like you had said starting in the fourth round and then onward, basically, it went from Ibeabuchi working to get off of me. Like, dude, get off of me. Like, it went from kind of pretty confident to like, can somebody fucking get this guy off of me? And so it changed very quickly. And I agree. So I had, what, uh, round four, five, six, seven for Tua as well. Um, And then after that round seven, Curtis Cokes, Great welterweight champion from the, uh, I believe it was the 1950s, maybe early 1960s. Point being, a uh, great welterweight champion, very, very, very good fighter, and also a really good trainer, tells Ibeabuchi in the corner, you're going to have to make a strong run at this man now. You can't just stand in there. you got to make a run at him. Basically saying, like, dude, you're you're sliding. And and also another thing, I apologize, I forgot about this. I I didn't write it down, but I think it was after the either the fourth or the fifth round. Um, gosh, I, I maybe I did write it down, but in any case, even Larry Merchant caught it, and Curtis Coke Curtis Cokes goes, "Don't quit!" Like, "Don't quit!" You're still in this, and I'm like, "Dude, it's like the fucking fourth. What do you mean, don't quit?" That's and and Larry Merchant was like. That was a really interesting comment from Curtis Cox between rounds. He said, don't quit. So what is he seeing from Ibe Ibuchi? So obviously Curtis Cox caught it too. 
It wasn't yeah. just us. We weren't just, mis- you know, Mr. Fucking Crazies about this. We caught it too that Ibeabuchi's complexion, you know, his mood as far as how he was accepting the fight changed. And so after round seven, Curtis Coase goes, hey, dude, you need to do something. And you know what? In round seven uh, or round eight, Ibeabuchi did. He kind of stepped it up and, and went back to how he was fighting a little bit. His output went up and he started fighting his way out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think... I think if you watch to his body language, like at the, cause I think that's a great point you make about the end of the round body language. Cause anybody who's been in there, when you're watching these guys, you're like, Oh, it's just three minutes. If you've never done any sparring, you're like, it's just three minutes. Why are they getting so lazy? Why aren't they? You always hear people that like, if, if you're in a, in an apartment or, or at your home and some and boxing's on and, and the action slows with heavyweights, like this is so boring. Why are they so tired? If you do it, I've had guys that were just tremendous marathon runners who could do all kinds of sports, and suddenly you'd spar with them for a couple of rounds. They're exhausted. They're puking. Yeah, just it, it's puking drawing on, on every so time. Many, yeah, and drawing on so many things psychically that wear on your stamina that is not the same as other sports. Panic. Yeah, you get panic, panic anxiety. When you get exhausted like that, but not just exhausted, but like, dude, there's there's gloves fucking taped to your hands so you can't do anything and you're just ah, and then you're tired but then there's also somebody punching at you that's yeah. scary you panic it it really it really is and and i think also just that you inescapably have to conflate loss to humiliation in a way that is not like any other sport Losing, losing the NBA championship is not like losing the heavyweight championship because you still lose in both cases, but in one, you could never be the same. And you, you're aware of that. You're aware of, I mean, all of these sparring ring wars or whatever, the cost that you're living with for the next week, for the next two weeks as a kind of trailer about what the rest of my life could be as a result of this, my brain being beaten in is, is a big deal. So there's something about the way Tua approaches this where at the end of the round, you never see him fighting in a way. Every time you go to a fight where you can, you're close enough live to watch the fighters look up at the big screen to see what the time is left. It's amazing how often you see it. But when you watch fights from the 90s and earlier, they never do it. They they're, they're, they just, it's a different mentality. And again, I don't know why that is. I mean, it's, it, it's not as if, I mean, Sugar Ray Leonard famously would try to win the end of rounds where he would hear the last 10 seconds. But what I mean is, is there's like a different kind of concern for the end of rounds. And when you're watching Tua, he seems almost like annoyed that it's the end of the round because he wants more time. And nowadays, it's more often than not, I'm seeing guys where they're like relieved that the round is over. God, that took forever. There's, it's a funny like elasticity with rounds about what kind of condition you're in and the opponent you're dealing with. And and Tua's body language, I think, begins to get to Ike, as you're saying, at the end of these rounds, the way he's fighting. He does not seem at all concerned by Ike. How many people has Ike ever had stand in front of him who don't look really concerned that they're fighting Ike Abibuchi, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everybody he's ever faced up to this point is like, what am I, why is this worth it? What am I doing? Yeah. What is my paycheck again? Yeah. 1500. And, and two is like, he was like the rounds over. Fuck. I, I gotta knock this guy out. Like, like I'm, I'm going to get to him. I'm going to break him down. And finally, mentally Ike's body language is not great, but again, he has the fortitude to sort of come back 
And I'm liking still his game plan of trying to flurry off of whatever two is throwing at him, but he is more submissive. He is backing up. Uh, Tua, Tua has, it's interesting that he has, doesn't have more knockouts with his uppercuts because they're vicious, but it would be, it, it's, it's an interesting opponent to face because you don't really know where to be defensively if you're standing in front of him because he's so comfortable throwing punches with leverage from so many different angles, even though he's not moving around much, as you say, the torque is there that he loves to throw two or three or four or five punches and, and fake with things to set them up. So, I mean, as we get to the 10th round and I'm just going to a, to a, to a every round, 10th round, the statistic comes up in the fight that there's been more punches thrown so far than Oscar De La Hoya and Pernell Whitaker's entire fight that happened fairly recently around that time. But I mean, I'm, I'm having Tua at seven to three. He's up by the end of the 10th round. And yet Abiyabuchi, I think, is, is putting on a better performance than he was as he was sort of losing confidence. But I don't know what I was watching 25 years ago, where to me it was like Abiyabuchi had this fight um, in the bag because rewatching, and I feel like the other way around, they're comparing it to the other big fights in terms of outputs, um, that it's already becoming historic as a fight in terms of where it's it's headed and ultimately lands. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, what's weird about this fight is that it's not talked about more than it is. It's known as a special fight, but it's not really thought of as a historic fight. I think I think one of the big issues, and so where I probably differ from you then is I gave Ike round eight because I thought that he pulled it out in the last minute or so. Um, HBO crew didn't really mention anything he was doing for some reason. Well, sometimes they just got into that groove, but they didn't really mention anything he was doing in round eight for some reason. And I thought that he had a very strong closing minute or so of round eight and he was back into a up. So I gave him that round, but I also thought it was somewhat close. Um, but then after that to around nine to around 10 to around 11. And then, um, there was one or two of those rounds that were, Somewhat close, but not close enough for me to give him the Ike Bayabuchi. And then round 12, I gave to Ike Bayabuchi because Tua just kind of uh, started sitting back a little bit too much in that round and didn't throw nearly as much as he had been. Um, so, I mean, I actually had the exact same score as Harold Letterman, which doesn't really happen that often, but I did. Um, but I mean, you know, it was, I think one of the big issues as far as what you were just now talking about as far as why this fight is not talked about more um, is that neither guy really gets badly hurt despite the, and I mean, it's more a turn the sound up and it's more a testament to their chins because these motherfuckers are landing some bombs at a, at a couple points. Like there's a few points in this fight where, you know, Tua throws a beautiful left hook downstairs and then up just that, that double hook, that bam, bam. And I mean, considering his body type, how fast he generally is not, I mean, that's just a great fucking combination from him. Bam, bam, just wow. And yeah. he landed that probably five, six, seven times on Ike, who didn't even flinch. And then Ibeabuchi, it was even in the in the, either the first or second round, Ibeabuchi lands an uppercut that totally snaps to his head back. Couldn't even have given a shit, dude. He would have gone right back to drinking that goddamn daiquiri, didn't even give a fuck. It was crazy, man. So these guys are landing some bombs on each other and nothing's happening. 
that's what's one of the, I think the biggest issue is that neither guy really gets hurt in this fight, despite the, the punches that are landed. And so for some reason, that lack of drama is not, you know, that's not helpful to the story value of the fight or whatever, but make no goddamn mistake, dude. These guys landed some absolute whistlers, bro. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, the weird thing about this fight is where they both go afterwards because I mean I I liked I liked Harold's score again I had it way more for for Tua because I just thought he controlled the fight after he turned it around being down the first three rounds I thought he conceivably could have won every round after that on on my scorecard even though I understand the activity level of Abiyabuchi but I just to me he just looked like the fighter who's I, I don't know. I found it really hard to even give him around. I didn't find many even to be close to being even my myself just because well, I thought, yeah, in, go ahead. Sorry, but there was something you said earlier that I wanted to respond to that I thought was really interesting because when the last time we had done one of these shows and I was like, I apologize because we get into a lot of technical stuff thinking people are going to go, Ugh. but there were actually a handful of people that went, no, I like that. Do more. And I was like, oh, huh. okay. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that like, uh, that really is interesting is like, you know, technique wise and all that type of shit. It's like the, the fight's just different. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. there's a lot of stuff going on in there. That's anyway, well, I didn't mean to take away from what you were saying, but the, I, it's a good thing that we're getting into the technique portion of it, I think, because a, a lot of people seem to like it. Well, just just in terms of the chess match of, of of what the fight is, and it's it's a strange chess match because it's so brutal, as you say. I can't think of a, a fight that's more brutal that you could call a chess match, but it kind of is, in a lot of ways. Where uh, Tua does not have an answer for any of the questions that Abiyabuchi is asking in the first three rounds, and then it flips, and Abiyabuchi suffers from the same problem that I don't feel like he ever solved, and I don't think he solved in any of the rounds that follow. Um, where it always seemed like the threat was that Tua was finally going to get through on a Biabuchi after the third round. And, and, and he did a handful of times with some hooks where you could see a Biabuchi was far more aware of Tua's power than the other way around. Yeah. And, and again, I'm not taking anything away from Biabuchi. I thought he fought an incredible fight. And I, I, I coming away from this, I think we, we mentioned some of the great fighters from the 1990s. I don't know any of those guys that if he fights them 10 times, he doesn't win at least five of them or four of them. Um, I don't, if you look at like the people that Lennox Lewis lost to, I mean, it's just two, but a Biabuchi would be very challenging for him because of his stamina, because, you know, he's got decent enough reach to keep Lewis honest. He's looks stronger than Lewis. I mean, he's only, he's 235 here. We forget Lewis was 250 and a couple inches taller, but still, I like a lot of things that he brings to bear. Um, I mean, fighting Tommy Morrison, I mean, like, who who could he fight of the great 90s heavyweights where it wouldn't be thrilling to watch? That's another thing, is as an opponent, I can't think of many people where it's just like, I need to see what would happen with that based on this guy. Tua going forward after this fight, even though he loses and he's he's the favorite and he was the one who was being set up to be the, the next Mike Tyson and everything. Um, Tua goes on like right back on track, uh, you know, annihilates Haseem Rahman, um, gets a tremendous first first round knockout against Obed Sullivan. 
um, and then gets to Lennox Lewis and is just horribly outclassed. But the important caveat, I think, after Ibibuchi is the battle with weight really becomes the main opponent in his life for the rest of his career. And we forget that David Tua had like an over 20 year career. Yeah. When uh, apart from the weight, one of the big, big issues in his career was Kevin Barry, his manager. He was tied up in litigation for a long time with Kevin Barry, and that kept him inactive. Kevin Barry, of course, is the dude that uh, defeated Evander Holyfield in the Olympics because from the hit on the break. Um, in any case, that really derailed to his career during a time where he needed to stay active. And uh, But, I mean, it was already kind of the weight was already a big problem before that. I think the inactivity and then the weight, you could see that he was coming in looking different as a younger fighter, as a younger undefeated heavyweight, uh, he was still massive, but definitely leaner. No question. You could see it just on box rec, looking at his weights, they start ticking up. And, and I don't think I've ever said this publicly before, but when, when I spent time in, in Rigondeau's corner uh, for a handful of training camps, Ronnie Shields became his trainer after Freddie Shields, uh, sorry, after Freddie Roach. And I think the first question I asked Shields was about this fight. It was about working with David Tua because I really liked David Tua when I first saw him. Like I thought he could, he, I was desperate to see him fight all of the top people. And just when he got close to winning a championship, it just would never happen sort of thing. And he said, he just said that Tua was the laziest fighter he ever worked with. In terms of the discipline of staying in shape and conditioning, he loved Tua, and Ronnie Shields is a really nice guy, um, but he was just, he just said flat out he was the laziest person I ever saw in terms of conditioning. And, and I think that that bears out with the rest of his career that he had enough power and enough kind of, he, he seems completely unaffected by the stress of fighting that every other fighter suffers from, as you should. Like, like he's a non-crazy person who just doesn't get stressed by fighting, which is extremely unusual. Because think of, I mean, Ali is another one who did never seem to get stressed fighting. Tyson Fury is somebody that does not seem to get stressed by being in the ring. He looks more comfortable in the ring than he does out in the world. Um, but Tua probably took for granted that he would still be competitive with like very high level heavyweights, even if he wasn't training properly. Now. We go to a really dark thing, which is where Ibiabuchi goes after this, because right after this fight, as we're saying, he did take a lot of punches, even though he's credited with scoring the largest amount of punches ever thrown in heavyweight history individually and cumulatively between the two guys. They both set the record. But after this fight, he complains of, quote, terrible headaches. He's taken to the hospital, MRIs, and very quickly, I mean, only two months after this fight, he abducts his former girlfriend's son and with a car slams into a concrete pillar in Austin, Texas, which, according to the criminal complaint, is determined to be sort of a suicide murder attempt. And it doesn't get better after that, unfortunately. Yeah, it the legal the legal portion of that case wound up being that the prosecutor had difficulty proving that he was trying to commit murder and wrote it off as a suicide attempt basically uh and so not much came of it except for i believe there was some sort of settlement where he agreed to give 
the child uh some six figure sum and then a portion half a million, half a million dollars was and the then sense. and then a portion of his winnings going forward um and so but i mean obviously that stood to be a lot if he had the potential to be heavyweight champion of the world um not to say that that not to say that makes it okay like not it just to make sure that that's clear but uh in any case yeah it and it even went darker from there unfortunately it's it, well, it went downhill from there yeah it went really downhill so he adopts this persona which i i love because it doesn't really mean anything but it was just kind of fun he becomes the president and as like a wrestling name it's sort of I, i'm th- trying to think of one that the wwf rival you know sort of like irs i i work for the insurance company you all hate the you know paying not insurance i mean paying your taxes and i'm so, the supreme court justice yeah <laughs> so so i'm i'm the president so okay ikebibuchi becomes the president from nigeria and and the problem was is that whatever was going on with his like neurochemistry he began to believe that he actually was the president and i'm not trying to go into nigerian prince email scam but it became this weird thing where his handlers had to sort of coax him into doing things by addressing him in accordance with his regal nature as the president. I don't know if he was the president of Nigeria in his mind or just maybe the global president or maybe the American president. Um, but yeah, he Ludabella said that he really did think he was the president periodically and sort of demanded that people call him that in a serious way. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking now, Debella said he wasn't sure if he was the president of the United States, but might have been the president of the entire world. Uh, he would go to meetings with HBO where he would act very strangely with a knife. And everybody was very, very concerned about his demeanor and general bearing. Um and then there's a comeback that happens uh, leading up to the Chris Bird fight, which I remember watching. I think it was live on TV, if I don't remember. Like, I think it was sort of like the HBO After Dark that in Canada they showed it, like, as as it was live air. On TSN. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. The Sports Network. And, I mean, Chris Bird was a fighter. I've heard that he's one of the nicest people in all of boxing. But I hated him as a fighter more than just about any fighter. Just the way he fought, I couldn't stand. And it's not because he wasn't good. He was tremendously good at what he did. I just found him tremendously annoying to watch. So to see that confronted with the kind of punches that Aika Biabuchi landed, I fell in love with Biabuchi as a fighter because finally somebody could hit the guy. Bird. It's sort of like what Floyd Mayweather created where you could just never hit him cleanly. And I mean, other than like Mosley landing against Floyd, like the guy was never hit. Full credit to him for being that difficult to hit. But that seemed like, again, like a, a, a kind of coming out party of, oh, my God, if he can beat Tua and beat a Chris Bird and seeing what Chris Bird was able to do against a lot of very high level fighters in the heavyweight division, it was like, what can I be a Bucci not do? But then it just gets way, way darker outside the ring. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, like, as you could already see, he's starting to free fall. He's starting to kind of uh, exhibit what would, I I guess, in my own dime store psychological perspective, be uh, delusional behavior, you know, kind of suffering what seemed to be breaks from reality at the very least. Um, but then on top of that, on top, so already he's attempted murder suicide with the son of his ex-girlfriend. And then uh, going forward, he continues to have these troubling meetings and interactions with boxing people and also media people and whatnot. And then after the Chris Bird fight, uh, he goes to Las Vegas. I think he actually lived in Las Vegas at this time, if I'm not mistaken. And he basically uh, called a call girl to his room, to his hotel room, and proceeded to assault her. And I mean, the details I know are fairly murky from there and not necessarily, I mean, I don't necessarily want to fucking comb through the details anyway, but point being, he did some awful shit, scared the absolute bejesus out of this poor lady and wound up being arrested. And I mean, he tried to like barricade himself in his room and he tried to, you know, it was bad stuff. And thank goodness there, nobody was uh, harmed more than they were already. And so he wound up being sent to prison, tried and sent to prison for, I think it was false imprisonment, kidnapping, sexual assault, a bevy of charges, and then threatened with deportation, and then eventually deported. And then I think he came back for, I mean, it's been a long, messy, like I said, the message boards and stuff like that, dude, this has been an ongoing thing for so long, uh, ever since that, especially the Chris Bird fight. And I think especially in the early 2000s, once it became apparent that Chris Bird was, he was good, you know, and Ibeibushi kicked his ass, but then he still came back and he was good, you know, Chris Bird. And I think a lot of people a few years after that came to realization, well, damn, where the fuck is this guy? You know, like we have all of these fighters here, like he beat David Tua. Many of us don't feel he beat it. And And at the time also, to be fair, the the narrative at the time was that Ibeibuchi did not actually beat Tua and that Tua deserved a close decision. That was that was honestly the narrative. So uh, a lot of people were kind of unconvinced. But then when he scored that win over Bird, and then Bird also still went on to be good, people were like, "Well, fuck, what are we missing out on then?" And yeah. so for a long time, that was kind of the that was the resounding hymn. When's Ibeibuchi coming back? When's he coming back? The reality was that obviously he was locked up for a long time and should have been for some really awful shit. And once you uh, are inactive for that amount of time and then adding to that the psychiatric issues that he suffered, you know, there was never going to be any sort of realistic comeback. Um, and, and even up to a few months ago, he was talking about still making a comeback, so, you know, recording videos of himself uh, shadow boxing. And thankfully, it doesn't sound like anybody's biting or perhaps he can't get licensed. Thank and you know, yeah. you know, I don't know what's going on, but either way, man, he sure took a dive and it definitely wound up being a massive what could have been case of, you know, a, a heavyweight who was extremely promising. Yeah, I mean, he right right after this fight that we're talking about, I mean, he began to talk about evil spirits and demons. And yeah, the whole religious group. aspect of it was a whole other thing, too, that yeah coming through coming through the air conditioning system um there was one allegation i read that was he was refusing to get into the ring to fight unless he had a snickers bar like <laughs> he he turned he turned down 
some million dollar fight to to fight Michael Grant and some other I think Jeremy Williams was another opponent but he he clearly something happened in this fight that damaged him or exposed damage that was already there I mean if you're already a little off kilter getting hit in the head by David Tua for 12 rounds in in a record setting punch up probably not the best thing perhaps Uh, not great yeah but I I think the world kind of dodged a bullet with what this guy might have done had I mean as bad as it was I think you're you're on point that it could have been way worse that this it's it's good that this guy went to prison if not like a mental health facility or something just to protect society because something was just really off with him in a lot of ways that at first was viewed as kind of kooky. And I can't believe that he was still allowed to be a free man after that thing with that, that kid, that kid, by the way, we didn't mention it, but was permanently damaged as a result of that accident. He will never walk properly ever again. So the idea that it was just a civil suit to settle it of half a million dollars to me is laughable i mean and i mean that just in the sense that i'm incredulous outrageous yeah outrageous it's horrendous a horrendous indictment on the criminal system to to not punish him further for for something like that so i don't know i mean i mean back to boxing leaving aside all this awful shit i think just kind of doing due diligence we need to point it out where 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 he went and but at his peak, I want to ask you as, as like a boxing historian, when we look at that list of heavyweights that I talked about, I mean, if this guy fought George Foreman around that time, I mean, I think he fucks Foreman up. I think he knocks it's, Foreman out. It's not totally out of the question, dude. And I mean, you know what? If he's taken, that's not to say that David Tua and George Foreman are equals in terms of punching power. They're different kinds of punchers, but... I think that if he's taking David to his bombs and that many of them, I think it's, I think it's safe to say he's probably taken Foreman's shots around this time, especially given how slow overall Foreman was. And he was at the end too, you know, he was getting dinged around. That's another aspect of this was Foreman was taking shots, you know, all throughout his second career. Like he was, he absorbed. Um, So, yeah, dude, I think there's a really good chance that Ibeabuchi runs him down and, you know, maybe just ends his career forcibly rather than just kind of forcing him out with a, on a decision or something. Um, yeah, he, and like I said, extremely formidable, at least formidable looking. And while his resume is not super deep, the names that do stand out are pretty good, dude. They're pretty damn good. Um, you know, and, and I, and I think you have to just look at also, like, if you think about what happened to Riddick Bowe with Galata, isn't this guy just a better Galata in a lot of ways? And I mean, Galata then, I don't mean what Galata became afterwards where it became sad, but I mean, I remember watching those two Galata fights against Bowe and just being like, wow, Galata is a force. This is a big guy who punches in combination, who could take a big shot. I mean, think of what Bowe yeah. did to guys on the way up to yeah, that dude. fight. Watching and, that fight and being like, oh, damn, this guy, never mind, never mind. Yeah, just <laughs> super, super weird oh, fight. He looks great. Oh, fuck it, never mind. But Bo was completely dominated in both of those fights. And I again, I, I readily acknowledge that that was not the same Bo that fought Holyfield in the first fight. That was the best Bo ever looked. He looked amazing. But against a Biabuchi, I don't know what, I don't know what Bo can really do to keep him off 
if if he had been uh perhaps if he had had a different genetic mental makeup i i don't know what caused it you know i don't know if uh to use a, col- a colloquialism if somebody knocked a screw loose in that to a fight i have no idea but uh if he had managed to stay straight or whatever you want to call it he came along at the perfect time he really did he came yeah. along at the perfect time to be able to do something you know the the division was very much in flux at this time you know uh if, uh, obviously Evander Holyfield was starting to fade out. Mike Tyson was pretty much out by this time. Lennox Lewis was still very much in there, but he had lost to uh, Oliver McCall. And so he had, you know, was still kind of staging a comeback from losing to Oliver McCall, et cetera. So like there was very much a, a gap here for Ibea Bucci to step into had he been able to just keep it straight. But that, that was not, that was not his fucking fate, you know? No, because I feel like if we were managing him and we're looking at this list of great heavyweights of that era, okay, I would keep him away from Lewis because I think Lewis, Lewis for me is the greatest heavyweight who ever lived. I, I At least I mean, for the time being, yeah. Like he'd need a, some more to get in with Lewis. Yeah, I, I just mean, I think Lewis brings more to the table as a heavyweight than anybody I've ever seen. I, I at his best. In my opinion, taking rounds of right hands from Lewis is different than taking rounds of, of uh, bombs from Tua. Like, in, And I mean in a way that Lewis yeah. would take them out, Yeah, in my opinion. If, if it were the same situation and Lewis were allowed to land like that, it, he'd be taken out. And he would set him up, and he's got Emmanuel Stewart in his corner to strategize. I mean, the only, time, the only times he lost... No, well, I mean, the one little question mark there is, is Lewis took everything he could take from Ray Mercer and nobody talks about Ray Mercer being one of the great heavyweights or anything. He's very good, but nobody's just like, Oh my God, Ray Mercer is a diabolical heavyweight presence. But Lewis really struggled against somebody who's a pretty straightforward problem. And Lewis, Lewis never really figured out how to deal with it. Now, if you look at the way that he fought Tua, he completely controlled that fight. But I think a lot of that also was the referee and Tua being out of shape, being being overweight, being a very different version of himself from, from this fight. But I don't know how Holyfield could really contain a Biabuchi. I just he's just too big, too strong, too active. And you can see when Holyfield meets a guy that tries to counter off of him, he's very uncomfortable. And he's very physical too. Like Holyfield was uh was a kind of fighter that wanted to physically shut you down. Like, yep. you know, use his gloves to kind of manhandle you and, you know, bring your arms down type of shit. You pull your yep. head and Ibea Bucci had the physicality that I'm not entirely sure that would have worked real great. Like, I mean, it, I know it did against Tyson, but Tyson's also a different kind of fighter. Like the style very much comes into play there, I think. Yeah, totally, totally agree. I just, I mean, they're both about the same height. I think Holyfield's about 6'2", mm-hmm. but... But Abiyabuchi, I mean, remember, he's only 24 in this fight. So conceivably, and he's lean. Like, I mean, he's got a full shredded six-pack in this fight. Like, I don't know if you'd want him to be 250. I don't know if you'd want him to be a little heavier. But he could very easily if he wanted to. I mean, if if this is him where he can sort of do a marathon at this kind of pace, probably you'd have three more years of him at this level if he's able to stay in condition. And if that guy is fighting a lot of the top people. I mean, look what David Tua did against Moore 
when they fought and think what Moore did against so many heavyweights, Foreman, uh, no, sorry, not Foreman, but I mean, Holyfield, um, Moore was a very dangerous guy and Tua just annihilated him. Granted, that was a Moore that probably didn't train very well for that fight. Um, but it's, I, I think he is the great kind of looming what if of this decade is, is what Abuchi, Abiyabuchi bought, brought to the table and, and similarly, it's hard not 25 years looking back to imagine what he would do in today's era, because I do think that the three big guys in the division have been very inflated in their value. Um, I, I do not think they're anywhere near as good as we talk about them as being. It's just, because their resume is just not there in the way that in the 90s, you saw what happens when you've got a deep division and people actually fight all the time, is exactly. they lose a lot. And the exactly. top three guys never fight and when they do fight how did wilder look in every round where he didn't knock down fury bad he you know like i i really think if michael grant was in that era he would have been the fourth person in there where it would have been like oh he's undefeated and and look at how big he is and everything like that and it takes a lennox lewis to expose people like that yeah i agree um, you know, Ibeabuchi would have been right with a lot of these fighters, at least on paper. And, and you know, using the kind of eye test, he looked good. He looked very good. Yeah. So, yeah, just a, a massive shame that he, that his handlers weren't able to, you know, keep him contained and that he himself had the issues that he had, you know, just awful. Um, so, and also an awful loss, too, for boxing in that regard, obviously, to a lesser extent, but an awful loss for boxing. And David, to a to a much, much lesser extent. He didn't live up to his potential either, but still had a long, very su successful career and is still today regarded as one of the best heavyweights to never win a world title. And I think that that bears out, uh, you know, at his best, especially looked very, very good. And this is, this was an example of that for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's also important to mention when we're talking about Chris Bird, Chris Bird was undefeated when he fought at Biabuchi. So, I mean, think of think of what he did recovering from that fight in terms of getting the victory over Vitaly Klitschko, uh, beating David Tua by you know, unanimous decision, beating Evander Holyfield, Freza Kendo, Jamil McCline. Again, some big punchers and that kind of thing. It's it's instructive about the way that Abiyabuchi was able to handle somebody as slick as Chris Bird at a time when he was undefeated. You know, he he was so confident in that fight and, and just couldn't find a way to deal with a Biabuchi. Many wouldn't have, you know, many wouldn't have, that's what makes us so sad. Yeah. But you know, you know what though? One person I'm telling you that I Biabuchi would not have stood up against Bobby motherfucking Chez. That's absolutely true because I think Chez would recognize with that driving into the concrete, you know, I think you need to come to the Bobby Chez drunken school of driving. And... You put the wreck and recognize, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, look what Bobby was able to do against Evander Holyfield as his stepping stone to fighting Mike Tyson, which I think was his intent. Well, uh, he, he tried to go into the cruiserweight division, but he was taking a drink a little before that cruise. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, I'm reaching. I'm, re I'm really reaching. <laughs> Bobby, we love you. Yeah, I don't think I want to see Bobby Chez and Ike Bucci at that. As much as I have my issues with Bobby Chez, uh, I think Corey Sanders, that Corey Sanders fight, that was enough retribution. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be at Canastota this next summer. Bobby's going to show up and kick my ass. <laughs> I'm going to get fucked up by old Bobby Chez.
Well, just just bring your, I don't know, wear like a Mensa towel or something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, brother. Yeah. Yeah. You, you. yeah, this was a fun one. This was uh, yeah, for sure, man. It had been a it had been a while since I'd revisited it, and um, I mean, can you think of another fight just before we end where you remembered your scoring one way and it was radically different reviewing it? I mean, not radically, but yeah, I mean, there have been fights where I've gone back and been like, oh, you know, I guess I scored it a little different, but you know what, one, probably the most, an, another fight we did that I remembered differently when we went back and did it was uh, Leonard Hagler was when yeah. I went back, I was for years and years, and I guess I just hadn't rewatched it for a long time. And I just kept thinking, nah, you know, Leonard, he outworked him like Hagler didn't do this. He didn't do this. And then when I rewatched it, I was like, man, I thought Hagler won that fight. I thought Hagler won that fucking fight. So for me, it was, you know, but regardless, uh, no, dude, there aren't that many fights where I go back and think that it's really that different. Usually I feel like my first take is pretty, unless I was drunk as fuck or something, you know, yeah, my yeah. first take is usually pretty spot on. Um, but I guess it does happen. I think this was the biggest shift that I've ever, ever seen. Like, like going back to something where I was like, what the hell was I watching the first time? Because I liked both guys. It wasn't as if just like there was a big bias about who I was rooting for to win. But I remember just thinking Abiyabuchi did way better than it actually seemed in looking back at it. I thought I thought my stock in Tua went way higher about what might have been with him, which is not the takeaway I had then. It was, oh, my God, what is Abiyabuchi going to do in the heavyweight division? Not, not so much Tua. Tua, I thought I kind of okay, he's got that amazing hook. And if, if he's able to land it, he's in trouble. But like, look what Lewis did to him. That's kind of what would have happened is, is people could figure him out and control him. He was limited in a sense, but boy, he did not look limited in this fight. I, th I think he deserves a lot more credit for what he did here. I agree. And, and had he gotten this decision, I mean, that doesn't necessarily, I'm not saying that if he gets this decision, then magically he's able to beat Lennox Lewis, but nonetheless, it could have changed the career trajectory. Maybe it could have given him the motivation to stay in shape. I don't know. It's true. It's really interesting. That's a really good point that if he wins this fight, could the trajectory have been changed in terms of the opponent selection? Because would it have, would it have meant that HBO would have got more behind him to fight some of the top people they had? Would there be more incentive and more money for bigger name people to accept a fight with him? I don't know. Cause I mean, as you're saying, he, yeah. And I think on YouTube, I was going to mention this YouTube, you can watch some of his sparring with Holyfield. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That's wow. like an hour long session, dude. It's fucking yeah. good. It's real good. Actually. There's like yeah. a couple of rounds where it's like, whoa, they're yeah. going in. Yeah. 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 They're going, they're going really hard. So Yeah. Fascinating two guys, fascinating sort of counterfactual trajectories that might have been, but but the way it played out, I think it deserves a lot more attention than it than it gets, even though it's this record breaking historic fight uh, statistically, but it's a lot more. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot going on there, and it's always fun to go through the kind of backstory and you know weave through what's going on uh, behind the scenes a little bit and kind of set this up. So I appreciate you doing the doing the homework and doing the reading up and whatnot because this is a lot of fun man thank you definitely definitely do it again soon well everybody who listened in thank you we appreciate you if you listen in through all these podcasting apps please go ahead and subscribe and leave a review if you watched on youtube hello thank you so much and also subscribe on youtube that is appreciated leave a comment and whatnot as far as social media goes the knuckles and gloves podcast is on both instagram and facebook but 
It's also on Twitter, at least as long as Twitter is a thing. Who fucking knows how long that will be the case? But speaking of Twitter, my boy, Bryn Jonathan Butler, is on there as Brinicio, B-R-I-N-I-C-I-O. And me, Patrick Connor, I'm there as Patrick M. Connor. Say hello. And Bryn, we'll talk soon, bro. You got it, man. Take care of yourself. Later, everybody. We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast while the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. And if you're that friend, this is us saying thank you. Just a friendly reminder that right now, get any size iced coffee before 11 a.m. for just 99 cents. And a satisfying sausage McMuffin with egg is just two seventy nine. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.